This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. University of Pennsylvania President McGill resigns, Musk reinstates Jones, and the FISA fight comes with some object lessons. This is Monica Perez. It's December 11th, 2023, and this is today's News Roundup. So let's start with a little, a few stories that stem from some of the stuff we talked about last week. One is Meta. So you will, you might remember if you heard the last news roundup I did last week, where I said, you know, normally I always look for whatever is the hidden meaning in the propaganda. I mean, I just never take stories at face value. But last week, the story was that the New Mexico uh, attorney general was suing Meta because they had done a sting operation where they set up these fake kid accounts and and Facebook drove sexual predators towards those accounts. And so there, there's an expose. And I thought, you know, normally I think this stuff has some deeper meaning, but I do know that the pedophilia stuff seems to be big and real. So I thought, well, I'll just give the story of the benefit of the doubt. When I went back, I guess it was Friday, the day after I did that, there was a there that story was in the print paper on Friday, I think. And then one right next to it on the same page, because it was about Meta. I kid you not, this the heading was Meta starts fully encrypting messages on Facebook and Messenger app. So they're doing some privacy stuff. That's great. Oh, what is this? The subtitle. Critics have warned such a privacy enhancement could aid child predators and other criminals. Meta has said it is working to address concerns. So I don't know if they're going to use the privacy thing as a shield for the sex predators, if that really is like the dominant cultural trend (laughs) coming towards us, or if they're going to use the child sex predator stuff to curtail their privacy efforts. Or they could do both. Or what I think is probably most likely is the privacy stuff isn't actually real. They can probably break through it at any time that they want to anyway. But they'll still facilitate or somehow not prevent child sex predator stuff. So anyway, they said that they're going to start end-to-end encryption on Facebook and Messenger, I think like ASAP. Uh it says govern, government officials have warned that it could hide illegal activity by child predators and other um, criminals. They said direct messages on Instagram will be end-to-end encrypted at some later date, but it's definitely coming. Um, they have said, uh, but government officials say that 
these privacy measures have sometimes even been used to block court-approved access to potentially illicit communications. So they're overly protective. I'm sure that's not where this thing will shake out. But what's interesting to me is it talks about, you know, this is the classic thing, is anything that is going to encroach on your rights, there are a few things that always go to security. So they want to take away your privacy. They want to take away your rights. They want to censor what you hear. And also they justify war this way. It's always for security, for fiscal security. For if you're on the left, you care about fiscal security. So they're like, oh, we need to like help the impoverished. And then the other, um, I mean, kind of everybody is concerned about physical security. So they're just saying we need to constantly surveil so that your kids are safe for the children, for the children. So that's what's going on here. Uh, I did not know that was that was in the offing, but I figured anything that I take at face value, there is another shoe to drop. There's another meta story since we're on the subject. It's a lawsuit from Spanish media over advertising practices. The uh, Association de Medios de Información seeks, oh, that was probably a little French. I don't speak Spanish. Um, seeks more than uh, around $600 million from Meta because they say they did not um, adhere to EU restrictions on privacy, uh, on data use, where you have to get people's consent for using their data to curtail or curate their advertising. Meta, I think, has not commented. But what's funny is that it happens to be good advertising for a new product that uh, they are offering. They are going to offer people in the uh, EU, they can either continue to use the free platform with ads, which may or may not involve data mining, or... You can pay a monthly subscription with no ads, and then subscribers won't see ads, and Meta won't process their information for personalized advertising. It's that drives me crazy because Facebook is basically lifelog. We talked about that last time, like a you know government surveillance operation looks like, and they get you to pay for it, which I think is funny. So anyway, that's what they're doing. Another little update from a story that we started last week. This is uh, FISA, the FISA update, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Here's a new headline on that. The U.S. government's most powerful spying tool is fighting for its life. A surveillance program known as Section 702 is expiring soon, and Congress is divided over how and whether to renew it. So one thing that this article said is there might put a little temporary um bridge measure in the defense authorization act which i believe is renewed every like december 31st so what it does section 702 i think it was that subject of all that like rubber stamping to blanket surveil any foreign entities and one thing that i forgot to mention last week is i believe judge napolitano said this on fox so i it's a pretty mainstream theory if not fact that what what we do is with the five eyes with the echelon countries the other english speaking countries england australia canada maybe new zealand that they all have these same acts and we spy on each other and then there's really no limits in trading that information later so that's another little 
quirk because they're like, oh, you can't take domestic information. But they do catch a lot of domestic information in this net. And that's what aggravates people. One thing I was thinking, but it's it's really doesn't I don't like this thought. They're arguing that you have to like constantly surveil, constantly surveil every single communication among every single person because 9-11. And I'm saying, if I recall correctly, the official narrative about 9-11 was that it was information exchange between departments. And here's the problem with that. That was probably in itself just uh, an exploiting the narrative for policies they wanted, which is to allow interagency communication up and down, like from states to federal, which a lot of that stuff is against the 1974 Privacy Act. And I, I'm happy with that. I do not want this kind of information sharing. But anyway, they're obviously using this as an excuse for all, all surveillance everywhere. It's kind of, you know, old stories, but... The reason I thought it was kind of interesting, especially today, is that uh, they talk about how, all right, here's a quote from today's article. The law has been caught up in domestic political controversies and is on the verge of dying or being sharply curtailed, even as the U.S. faces renewed concerns about terrorism in the Middle East. Hadn't you noticed that it really died down? I was seeing that happen. Anyway, so that it will probably die down again after this thing is renewed. But uh, there were a couple of cautionary tales I wanted to share with you that came up since my last show. And one of them is uh, somebody I know is working for companies under investigation and, uh, the, the company's just under for like some business thing. And, what they did, all the employee, I think it was all the employees, I think it was all of them, had to hand in their phones and got back a list of the different, of like uh, the people who've been texted or emailed on the phone. And it said, like, the government said, you can take off that list anybody who um, is just personal. But the other stuff we're going to read because it has to do with this investigation. And I, I, I thought, like, I never thought of it like in that like concrete terms, like a clear and present danger. So, I mean, if you talk on the phone, I don't think there's any, I don't think those phone calls are subject to scrutiny at this time in this way, but it's just a kind of lesson. Maybe if there's something that you never want anybody to read. Now, they did exempt the personal stuff. So maybe, you know, maybe they stick to that. But I think if there's something you never want anyone to read, don't write it down. But here's another, another thing that came out of the conversations we had last week about the Catholic, about the FBI memo that is widely reported as being about uh, the FBI suspecting or identifying radical Catholic, rad trad cats, radical traditional Catholics, which I just feel like traditional Catholic is... I guess it's kind of radical in itself, but I don't know what a radical traditional Catholic is. So uh, as being potential domestic terrorists, that was the big hullabaloo. But that isn't what that the memo that was being like, like, I feel like that was a total redirection because what the memo said was that. That. Violent extremists, racist, violent extremists might target rad trad cats 
for radicalization. And that, so the memo was about providing an opportunity for the FBI to get into traditional Catholic circles and try to identify these troublemakers. And I suspected they were trying to identify patsies they could use for false flags that may be coming out of their operation with the traditional Catholics. And they said it was going to accelerate through the election. So a priest I used to know, who used to listen to me on WSB in Atlanta, contacted me and said he thinks something like that happened to him, that a, um, uh, it was a, a very long and fascinating story. I mean, it was on the edge of my seat. I'm not going to give you all the details, but I just want you to know, like, this kind of, the, I totally believe this was one of those things that this was somebody getting in there to try to create an opportunity for like, I don't know, false flag or whatever. So what this guy did was he said somebody came to his place and or went to another priest he knows church and said, oh, does anybody say the Latin mass? And he's like, no, but I know there's a guy like outside the loop, whatever says the mass. So he goes. So then this really old guy shows up didn't even really seem Catholic and uh, didn't really know exactly what to do at the mass, but only wanted to do the Latin mass. Like, that's very weird. But this, the guy would go to the Latin mass for like months. And every time he would wait afterwards to talk to the priest who said the mass. And he always brought him something, something weird, something for the parish. He would lend him something or give him something, you know, not, it was just very strange. And one time, it was a uh, a silencer for a gun. And he got him to look at it and hold it. And I mean, if it hadn't been going on for so long, it really, like, it would have been such a weird thing to do. But just after months and months of this guy doing kind of weird things, you know, the priest got used to it. and. Fortunately, he had his wits about him. And although he touched it, he wiped it off again. Like he realized, like, oh my gosh, what is going on here? And he like wiped it off. Hopefully that that's enough. But the story is so telling because what it talks about is, you know, what it reveals is that these things are long-term plans and they they have that psychological element that is basically line one of is it Ivan Ilyich by, is it Dostoevsky or Tulsa? I don't remember. But it starts out with, man is a creature who can get used to anything, and that may be the very best way to define him. And it means stuff like the gulag, but it also applies to like this weird behavior. So you would never let a perfect stranger just like hand you a gun and hold, like, hold this, you know? <laughs> but like getting used to that behavior just like, did a bunch of weird things. Anyway, after that incident... The guy who was coming to every single Latin Mass disappeared. So there were a lot of other details that make it very clear to me. Like this was, well, that make me personally convinced that that was an example of what that FBI memo was saying was going to start happening. And the memo was written around the same time that this incident began. And I'm just telling because I think people should understand that uh, watch out, watch out for 
strangers with guns. Like, just watch out for, um, you know, the setup, the setup. So that actually goes to, you know, the pro- the pro. Now that's like obviously like a setup situation that you want to avoid, but the. But to avoid, like, when you have to take it to the next level and avoid what we talked about, like, in, in about the university professors, to avoid going to rallies, to avoid protests, you know, I have mixed feelings about that. Because, A, I don't want people to feel chilled in, in standing up for what's right. But uh, I have a lot to say about that, especially in light of the fact that one of those three university presidents that we talked about last week has since resigned. And I want to get into that story. First, a little quick hit on um, Elon Musk reinstating Alex Jones to Twitter, or is it X? Do I have to call it? It's the dogs, really. Um, I hate, like, I'm in this, only in this way, my conservative, is that I like to conserve the past I like to go th- back, and for me, I don't want to call it X. I only want to call it Twitter. So I feel like I'm being like conditioned when I change what I call things. It's just I don't know. It's annoying to me. Uh, so Elon Musk did a poll that had the words "Vox Populi," "Vox Day," which I did not know what it meant, but it means "Voice of the People," "Voice of God," and then asked, "Should Alex Jones be reinstated?" And the poll was answered by two million people, and seventy percent of them said yes. Now, these are two million people who follow Elon Musk, which I do not, and I assume the people, you know. Plus, he runs the company; he could easily manipulate that poll. And then he wrote after. Because the people have spoken, and so it shall be. And uh, he said it's bad for X, but principles matter more than money. Um, so he, he had like basically three big things to say about this. That, which is like, you have the power, and I work for you kind of thing, or I'm with you. We stand together. He's like Spartacus. <laughs> um, so he said that. He also said that, X aspires to be the global town square, so permanent bans on anyone should be extremely rare. It's such a controlled environment, it can't really be the global town square, and that should be the front of the government offices. Like, all of our assemblies should be in person on the steps of, you know, we have the right to assemble, to position, we should all be right there interacting with each other in genuine space because actually a ban like that at least people go to where alex jones is and i personally think those bans for the really big guys make them more money but i'm shadow banned it's pretty clear because people say uh, most of the time they don't see my stuff unless they go to my feed uh i used to get like a lot of likes and shares and stuff i think i just got a lot of traffic and now i get hardly any ever I have 19,000 followers, (laughs) but I get like nothing, which is fine. I'm not complaining. I don't care. I I enjoy the people who do interact with me directly. I actually prefer that anyway, but I'm just saying it's not going to be the global town square because we're not, you know, we're not really, we don't really have a voice. You know what I'm saying? He is the voice of God in that scenario. And I am not one of the people. Uh, 
was the was it 1984 that had the confessional booth like where you went in and you told your thought crimes and it wasn't to anybody but it was just made a record i feel sometimes like my tweets are that like nobody's hearing them except for the authorities and i'm like confessing my thought crimes (laughs) telling my truest feelings you know what i mean yikes anyway but but one thing that i found very distasteful about this whole thing with musk and jones is that musk had said that he would not let alex jones back on twitter because of how Alex Jones made people, Sandy Hook families, feel, and that Musk himself had lost a child. He said, my firstborn child died in my arms. I felt his last heartbeat. I have no mercy for anyone who would use the deaths of children for gain politics or fame, he wrote at the time. But I feel like bringing that story into this conversation is exploitive. I mean, that's something I wouldn't, um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm not using that uh, you explore what did he say? A uh, death of a children for gain, politics, or fame. I mean, it seems political to me. Uh, I did not really know this story though. His first child was born in 2002, uh, by the name of Nevada Alexander, two years after he and his first wife Justine married. I guess so. We know that she didn't like do it on purpose, whatever. But he died from sudden infant death syndrome at 10 weeks old after he was put down for a nap. So um, anyway, this whole story of bringing Alex Jones back to Twitter, I really do not know if that's going to be the end of Twitter, if that's what its point is. Are they going to gab it to death? Are they going to make it like a really offensive place to be? So only those who agree with you know radical conspiranoid ideology or whatever are there. I really don't know what the plan is. I thought X was going to be the next like universal everything app, but maybe that's going to be meta. I really don't know, but that's my story on that one. Um, all right. So here's the, here's the big story. Uh, the university of Pennsylvania's Liz McGill stepped down over the weekend. Now, last week we were talking about the story before she resigned. I didn't realize it was going to lead to her resignation. And I don't think she did either because when she was in this congressional hearing, she was kind of smirky. If you ask me, she was a little bit smirky, (laughs) you know, and I think I know why I think because it was like four and a half hours into this thing. It was so obvious the like fallacious baiting that this um, Stefanik, the New York congresswoman was doing to them. And I'm sure they were beaten down for the longest time. And this chick's got some bones. So it's uh, McGill. So it was President's Cornbruth, Cornbluth from MIT, Gay from Harvard, and McGill from University of Pennsylvania. So McGill was the dean of Stanford Law School. I should know that because I went there. But she was dean after my time. She was the head of the Yale Democrats, where she was an undergrad. Yale's pretty hard school to get into. Uh She went to University of Virginia Law School, out of which she became, uh, well, maybe not immediately, I'm not sure, but a lot of times it is. She was a Supreme Court clerk for Ginsburg, RBG. So, seems unlikely she's anti-Semitic. She seems unlikely that she is going to be outclassed in an argument by Stefanik, who was at the time of her election the youngest congresswoman or person to be elected to Congress. Biden was one of those types, and, and so was AOC. But um, 
she's a Catholic chick. She went to Harvard. She was born in 1984, Stefanik. I mean, I'm not saying she's stupid, but she's not going to beat this McGill in a legal argument. But the point is that you don't get your day in court. You only get your day in the court of public opinion. And, and if the media wants to clip stuff out and make you look a certain way, then they do. So the clip that I saw when I heard about this resignation, it seemed a little cold. And then I was like, this is like highly edited. I want to just see what happened like the one minute before. And I'm actually going to play that clip for you. Probably after, maybe after the break, when I hear some comments and stuff. But, uh, so yeah, they not only are these women who are in charge of these universities obviously well briefed by counsel, some of them are, at least McGill is an extremely, at least in the academic world, accomplished lawyer. Uh, she tried not to. She offered an apology, a recorded apology, which I read, which also. Let's see what she said in her apology. She said, for decades under multiple Penn presidents and consistent with most, most universities, Penn's policies have been guided by the Constitution of the United States and the law. In today's world where we are seeing signs of hate proliferating across our campus and our world in a way not seen in years, these policies need to be clarified and evaluated Penn must initiate a serious and careful look at our policies, Provost Jackson, and I will immediately convene a process to do so. But she's not getting that chance because she ended up just striking down. Um, so, and by the way, Congress is basically promising to harass the other two presidents basically to death until they resign as well. Now, maybe they don't feel like they have to resign because they have the shield of intersectionality. Corn Bluth is a Jewish woman and Gay is a black woman. And McGill maybe just being a woman isn't enough to stay on the scrutiny. I don't know. I don't know if Congress is going to get the other ones to step down. I really don't know. But this definitely, there's a lot of factors here that I find interesting. One is that the basket is filling up as it were. So this, I, there's the basket of deplorables, which is on the right, and the basket of irrationals, I call it, on the left, because they don't. it's not always ideologically consistent. But the Wall Street Journal had an opinion about this, that, which was kind of confusing to me, but it was establishing the, the basket. It said, these schools may attempt to mollify the fury by adding Jews to the classes deemed oppressed. So I guess Jews are not a, a protected minority. Uh, that may make anti-Semitism less tolerated on campus, but it won't change the deeper rot of anti-American, anti-Western instruction that dominates so many campuses. Now, that what the basket is that they're equating is if you um, do not support Israel in the current conflict, you are anti-American, anti-Western. Um, the you're on the side of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Not just those words, but the programs that those words represent, uh, and what they describe as policies that use race, gender, and sexuality as political weapons to enforce intellectual conformity, dictate tenure decisions, and punish dissenters. Uh, it goes on to say the. Boards must appoint presidents who will stand up to the DEI censors and require intellectual diversity among the faculty by 
<laughs> by narrowing the uh, intellectual diversity, donors need to continue to boycott, et cetera, et cetera. But the funny thing is that McGill was hit by both sides. She was widely criticized for allowing, um, for not supporting people who attended, faculty, staff, whatever, maybe even students who attended this um, Palestinian literary arts festival that was held on the campus of UPenn in September. And in the Wall Street Journal's words, it featured speakers whose past statements about Israel had drawn accusations of anti-Semitism. I think there's, they're talking about Roger Waters from Pink Floyd. So she was criticized for letting the Palestinian Art Festival continue, even though Roger Waters was there. And then she was, so then people who went, I guess, were criticized. And then she, again, was criticized for not defending the people who went from criticism. I mean, so obviously there's absolutely no way to win these arguments, but I'm not super sympathetic because they die by the sword, these people. They set up these moving targets, these subjective rules, these um, picking favorites kind of thing. And and from that point, you just have to, uh, you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. So I think it's 2.30, half past, whatever. and. So let's take a break. Let's talk about, let's get some comments. I'll finish the story. I'll play the clip, which is worth hearing because, uh, you know, it's, it gets, it gets distorted. You have to hear the whole entire clip. Okay. So I have some comments. Let's hit it. My people. All right. So I say, I, I actually ask people, if you're listening now, that's great. If you're listening in audio then you're listening in the future. But if you're here on YouTube, if you come to YouTube at two o'clock, I'm going to try to do Mondays and Thursdays at two o'clock. Uh, you can give me a comment, put a little asterisk before your statement. Stella says, okay. Hi, John. Oh my gosh. I have an international credit from Australia to the UK. Wow. Stella wants to know if she can pay monthly subscription to life and eradicate all advertising. I don't know. When you step off the grid, which you have, um, I think you probably did. That's the that's the life without advertising. Oh, Runaway Slav says he found me through the history homos and I should keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Those guys are world class comedians, in my opinion. Um, OK, let's see. Yes, the dog. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I had to step away from the dog. Okay, Nate says, Elon mentioned that old Twitter had banned him for confronting Oliver Darcy. Great spaces by Alex, Elon, and Mario. Well, let's see. Uh, yes, Twitter is the ultimate diary. And sometimes I even... So now that I see that you guys are putting the asterisk up, I can pull it up in real time while I'm doing the story. So we'll, tr we'll try that next time. Uh, yes, yeah, so I actually sometimes just put up all headlines that I'm thinking about doing for the next day's show. It's it's like my, you know, notes for the show. But yeah, you know, it's there for everyone to see. Uh, oh, Harvard President Gay is being looked at for plagiarism now. Yikes. Uh, I did not know that. Anyway, so let's let's finish the story about the about the presidents. So. One thing, all right, so another one of the presidents, gay is Harvard, Cornbluth is MIT, and McGill was University of Pennsylvania. So apparently, 
Kornbluth at MIT had invited a scientist to talk about climate change. He was a Chicago scientist by the name of Dorian Abbott. He had had some comments about affirmative action that aren't, you know, I didn't like research everywhere this person said, but seemed like it was within the realm of normal uh, thought and certainly not as aggressive as Thomas Sowell's exposés of affirmative action. But Thomas Sowell is black, so he probably would not be canceled for that. But they disinvited this person from speaking about climate because of views on affirmative action. And uh, this is very important. And of course, this is the point. The whole point of it all is self-censorship. And the journal says many students are engaging in self-censorship to avoid being punished for views considered problematic on campus. Uh, A recent survey says that 61% of students said they often felt intimidating in sharing beliefs different from their professors in class. That's interesting that 61% of the students have beliefs different from those professors in class. That's very interesting. They're not fully... Um, indoctrinated until they get to college. 46% of undergrads said they thought it was appropriate to shout down or disrupt a speaker on their campus. Okay. So here's, here's my view. I was thinking about it. I was like, what do I, what do I think I would do if I were in their position? And I thought, why do you need protests on campus at all? Why don't you have a, a formal process where you can petition, maybe even get a uh, something on the ballot. And then I thought, but why do they even, I mean, that's fine. I'm fine with that. But why, what are you protesting? What are you protesting? You, are you protesting bad teaching? Because these schools are private universities that you can pay, that you can go to, that you don't have to go to, that have competition. Even the Ivy Leagues have competition. There's more Ivy League schools than there are, you know, whatever, um, hardware store chains. <laughs> so you can definitely go to another school if you're worried about the teaching quality, but it's really the politics that they want to hash out in public. But why even have politics in the schools? I mean, maybe I'm just saying what everybody already already knows, but it's not an inherent part of being educated. And that's, of course, obviously people are saying, like kids are just getting indoctrinated at schools, but it's causing these problems and nobody's even identifying that it's causing conflict. And of course, they want it to cause conflict because they've got anti-Islamic sentiment on one side, anti-Semitic sentiment on the other. And media, academia and politics are all pushing this stuff up to the front of the, you know, of the news cycle. So I thought it was interesting as I looked into uh, I was trying to find what are what are the like classical purposes and styles of education? I was trying to look like, do they teach even? So I was going to say like, there shouldn't be politics there, but of course art is inherently political or can be except for just the skills of drawing and stuff. So should they not have art? And I thought classically speaking, do they have art in, um, in college? So here's from Wiki for what it's worth. From the time of Plato through the Middle Ages, the quadrivium was a grouping of four subjects or arts, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy, that formed a second curricular stage following preparatory work in the trivium, which I'm a big fan of, consisting of grammar, which is like rote knowledge, logic, which is how to think. Both of those things are actually taught. That's what STEM is. But the third thing is rhetoric, which is like the high school stuff. It's about 
how to influence people and how to be influenced. They've cut that out of public schools. They don't want you to be able to recognize being propagandized or being able to influence people. And they don't mind you having knowledge or thought, but they want it to be in science and stuff like that. So it's not the liberal arts, which were, of course, the arts engaged in by the free men, the free thinkers. It says, uh, together, the trivium and the quadrivium comprised the seven liberal arts and formed the basis of a liberal arts education in Western society. They are considered thinking skills and are distinguished from practical arts, such as medicine and architecture. thought that was interesting. Anyway, uh, so here's the thing. Let's, let's listen to the clip. I have my little headphones on. She says, um, well, let's just listen to it. Let's see if I can work this. Dr. Kornbluth, does M at MIT, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate MIT's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying and harassment? Yes or no? If targeted at individuals, not making public statements. Yes or no? Calling for the genocide of Jews does have, not constitute bullying and harassment? I have not heard calling for the genocide for Jews on our campus. But you've heard chants for intifada. I've heard chants, which can be anti-Semitic depending on the context when calling for the elimination of the Jewish people. So those would not be according to the MIT's code of conduct or rules? That would be um, investigated of, as harassment if pervasive and severe. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So is your if testimony it, that it, you will not answer yes? If it uh, is, if the, yes speech or becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment, yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? The speech is not harassment? This is unacceptable, Ms. McGill. I'm gonna give you one more opportunity for the world to see your answer. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's code of conduct when it comes to bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be harassment. The answer is yes. And Dr. Gay, at Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? Targeted as an individual, targeted as, at an individual. It's targeted at Jewish students, Jewish individuals. Do you understand your testimony is dehumanizing them? Do you understand that dehumanization is part of anti-Semitism? I will ask you one more time. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? Anti-Semitic rhetoric. When it and is it anti-Semitic rhetoric? Anti-Semitic rhetoric when it crosses into conduct that amounts to bullying, harassment, intimidation, 
that is actionable conduct and we do take action. So the answer is yes, that calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard Code of Conduct, correct? Again, it depends on the context. It does not depend on the context. The answer is yes, and this is why you should resign. These are unacceptable answers across the board. So you'll hear that what she's saying is about the code of conduct. She's not asking their personal opinions. And they obviously got together and had counsel tell them how to answer this. This was four hours and 40 minutes into the hearing. So the I, I don't know. I think that these guys had had many opportunities to explain their personal position to the to the the policies of the school it was all about the personal it was all about the code of conduct i mean it was a setup it was do you still beat your wife or do you you do black lives matter or all lives matter like how are they supposed to be answering these questions i don't have a lot of sympathy for them because they you know to get that far in those positions, I I think they play this game themselves. I don't know if they would ever be that obnoxious about it. I really don't know. But I think that what those people were, those presidents were trying to avoid responding to was a specific thing, which was um, a, uh, it's reported in the Wall Street Journal, a popular, I think it's the Wall Street Journal, a popular chant at pro-Palestinian rallies at Penn and other universities has been falsely misrepresented in recent months as a call for Jewish genocide. Experts and advocates say that the chant is Israel we charge you with genocide. It's a typical refrain heard at pro-Palestinian rallies. Jewish and Palestinian supporters both acknowledge protesters aren't saying we want Jewish genocide. So and I also think that's true from the river to the sea, like uh, other things get flipped. Never forget the big lie, like um, phrases associated with one thing become associated with something else and really confuse the issues. And maybe these people were trying not to have that super confused. I don't know. But uh, they are, McGill had already implemented in November a, quote, whole university approach anchored in the U.S. national strategy to counter anti-Semitism with a plan that centers on safety and security, engagement and education. This was something she had already widely publicized. Um, you know, obviously, this was a setup. It was a setup and and they got it done. Uh, but private colleges are not. They don't have to adhere to the First Amendment, but they wade into this stuff. And uh, anyway, right. Another adjoining article. That um, Robert Kraft, I think, matched another funder. So now uh, 200 million dollars is going into the foundation to combat anti-Semitism. And the three uh, tenets of that organization, the three goals are to rebuild and celebrate Jewish identity by partnering with initiatives focused on Jewish audiences and amplifying personal stories. Sounds good. Engage individuals through mass media channels to build familiarity, empathy and understanding towards Jews. It's propaganda, but let's just, you know, no harm in that, I think. Uh, on the face of it, but to raise, this is the third thing, to raise awareness and respond to anti-Semitism by developing a world-class command center that uses advanced technology to monitor conversations related to anti-Semitism. Now, since they're obviously using this to entrap people and to 
twist people's words and stuff. I think if they're monitoring conversations, you know, you got to wonder if they're um, going to step outside, color outside the lines there. I don't know. But anyway, okay. So let's see what else you guys have to say. And then we will wrap it up till next time. CFR Network, hey. All right. So John Jasper says the question is unacceptable. It implies that calling for genocide is only unacceptable if it's directed at Jews. Uh, okay. I'm not sure. I, I mean, I hear what you're saying. I had kind of like the flip side of that, which was. It seems to me all of this is rooted in the suggestion that if you don't approve of the current military action in Gaza that is being taken by Israel, it comes from a place of hate for Jews. And that's just not true because many of the protesters on college campuses are Jewish. This is a question of what is just and what is not just when it comes to violence. And, you know, the death count in Palestine is up to probably 18,000 is the official and and the you know Hamas isn't racking up anymore. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! So there was an article in the Wall Street Journal. I have to save it for Thursday about the Hamas leader. Uh, what's his name? Yahya Sinwar. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten flags like red flags. I was like. Sounds fishy, sounds fishy, sounds fishy. <laughs> so I have all of those for you, which I don't know, like, just going to go down the rabbit hole on that one just because this guy got radicalized in an Israeli prison. I don't know. Anyway, let's see what else we got here, and then we shall wrap it up. Runaway Slavs. Anyone mentioned who is also largest donor to the United Nations program, same one building school, hospital, water facilities in Gaza? Um. Oh, that it's the... That it's Uncle Sam. Well, one of the things that came out of my research here on Hamas is how much uh, schools and mosques and stuff Israel built, let Hamas build with their money in order to give Hamas a foothold, I guess, in, in, uh, you know, tension against the Palestinian Liberation Authority, which no longer exists anyway. But I'll get into all of that next time. So thank you so much for coming and for listening. Let me see if I can't conjure up a little outro. All right. Thank you, guys.